Now, I tend to do this as I preach, but I usually bring you halfway into a text of Scripture, which is uh, somewhat unfair of me to do. It's sort of like uh, having you walk into a movie halfway through, which you can imagine the angst that people would feel over that. So what I would like to do, first of all, before we uh, jump into the text, is just to give you some background as to what's happening in Luke's gospel. <clears throat> Luke, as he's writing this Text to Theophilus is the recipient of the letter, uh, has many things in his mind as he's approaching the parable uh, of the prodigal son and then the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. So for just a moment, I want to do some um, background issues related to the text, what Luke has been walking us through so we can better hear the text this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I would appreciate it if you could have those out and walk with me through uh, Luke's Gospel. Of course, the text this morning is on page 740 of your Pew Bible. I'll be reading from the NIV this morning. As we'll see, the best interpretation of a parable is one that's placed in its context. So we have to understand the context surrounding this parable, which means all that's come before it in Luke's gospel. So very quickly, let me give you a walkthrough of Luke's gospel, and you can certainly feel free to turn to page 723 and walk through this very quickly with me, too. 723 is the start of Luke's gospel. Luke begins in Luke chapter 1 and 2 by setting the stage for Jesus in his ministry by giving us a comparison and a contrast between two different characters. The one character, of course, is John the Baptist, who is the forerunner for Jesus, who sets the stage for Jesus, a vital prophet in the ministry of God's program in the kingdom, and then Jesus. And in each case, uh, we have the birth, the annunciation, uh, and the miraculous issues surrounding each of these children. But Luke wants to set off for us that as great as John the Baptist is with his birth and annunciation, so much greater is Jesus. (laughs) And that's an important theme as we go through Luke's gospel. And when we go into Luke chapter 3, we're introduced to the fact that John the Baptist is now on the scene proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And many people are coming out to him. What's interesting, if you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke with their gospel accounts, is that Luke is the only one who doesn't uh, present to us the fact that the Pharisees are also present at John's baptism. And so, in our minds, we come into Luke chapter 15 with a perception of the Pharisees, but Luke's been instilling in us an understanding of who these characters are from the very beginning, and they're not partaking of John's baptism in any respect. Of course, with John's baptism, Jesus himself is baptized. And with the baptism of Jesus, if you're looking at Luke chapter 3, 21 through 22, we have Jesus coming up out of the water, the Spirit anointing Jesus with himself. He is the anointed prophet, priest, and king. And the voice comes out of the heavens, you are my beloved son. And so if we haven't understood already, Jesus is vital in the program of God, inaugurating the kingdom and the one who represents God's program and ways and intimately tied in with the Father, his ministry, and his purpose. Things don't get any more glorious as far as a picture of Jesus is concerned. So Theophilus in his mind rightly knows that whatever Jesus is doing represents the will and the pleasure of the Father. Then Luke throws us into Luke chapter 4 where we have the temptation accounts. Jesus, as the beloved special son forms the temptation aspect for the devil, who says, if you are God's son, three times, challenging Jesus' fidelity to the Father, 
How special are you? Will you overcome where Israel did not, where Adam did not? And he does overcome. Then what's very interesting is we have this portrait of Jesus as God's special son who does more than Adam and Israel could ever do. And immediately, Luke is instructive and unique here among the Gospels. We are placed smack dab in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. So the question in our mind is, we have this wonderful, exalted son of God who is succeeding where no one else has, but what are you going to do as God's special son? And the first thing we see is he goes up to his hometown of Nazareth. And you're probably familiar with this very interesting narrative. But as the text is unrolled before him, the book of Isaiah, he reads these words as far as his mission is concerned as God's special son. The spirit of the Lord has anointed him. We've seen that in chapter 3. And for what purpose? Jesus says to preach good news to the poor to preach good news to the poor. So in the rest of Luke's gospel, we see that program instituted by Jesus left and right, in and out. And what's so interesting about the Nazareth uh, response to Jesus is he is telling them that when I am sent out to proclaim the good news to the poor, it's not going to go out to those whom you expect it to go out to. And you know at the end of this Nazareth encounter is that they actually seek to kill him, largely because of two of his comments that hearken back to his line of Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha, how God's program did not go out to those within Israel. It went outside the bounds of Israel to Naaman and to the woman of Zarephath, both Gentiles, outsiders, outcasts, or dogs, if you will. We see Jesus then throughout Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 6, instituting the program and calling people to himself, people that certainly would have raised eyebrows in the first century. We have the first encounter with Peter, who realizes the supremacy of Christ, and he falls down and says, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And then we have Jesus calling Levi, a tax collector, at the end of Luke chapter 5. And this begins for us our introduction to the Pharisees. We begin in chapter 517, and then again with a call of Levi, with the fact that the religious leaders, namely the Pharisees, are opposed to the program of Jesus. And for Luke, much of that centers on his association with sinners. It certainly comes into play with Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament, But principally, much of the antagonism comes over who Jesus associates with. A major concern for the Pharisees. And we do have to understand in the first century context that who you spend your time with, who you eat with especially, is what Luke would call table fellowship. It's a constant motif or theme for him. Because table fellowship, we might not understand it for the first century, is a social bond, is a social network. It establishes boundaries, parameters for your class. So you can imagine, and this is somewhat difficult for our context, but um, it would be as if when we have the most intimate family meal, you know by that intimate family meal you have a commonality and kinship and closeness and community, and so you don't normally invite other people inside of that. It represents I'm you, you belong with me, we're one. And the closest analogy we might have to that would be a Thanksgiving meal. Right? Intimate family setting, and can you imagine inviting somebody not in your family? Or worse, somebody that you despise or would reject 
or someone that you would look at as dejected in society. And so that would be a very awkward experience for us today as well with an intimate setting. But the first century Palestine, it occurred with every meal. And so the Pharisees, like every other group, would eat with people with whom they deemed socially acceptable and on their level. It was a social pragmatic statement. And Jesus intentionally drives into that pragmatic statement by saying, I'm instituting the program of God and the most deliberate way to show God's inclusiveness, his open acceptance to all people, is to eat with these. But we also know for Jesus, when the tax collectors and sinners are coming to him for Luke, repentance has already been occurring for them. And so there's a response to John the baptism's baptism that they stand in need of God's redemption And so it isn't willy-nilly, I accept you just as you are. It's you understand the supremacy of Christ and his program in the place of God. And so you see your unworthiness and come to him in that light. So that's what's happening here as we work through. Now, as we go from Luke chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, Jesus is doing many miracles. There's constant antagonism to him, and that reaches a climax in Luke chapter 7 where we have Jesus invited to Simon's house, Simon the Pharisee, and a sinful woman, associates himself with Jesus. And you're starting to catch the themes that this has already happened with Levi, now it's happening with a sinful woman, and here again it's going to happen in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is sending out the 12, and they've been with him. They've understood his supremacy and God's plan. And they are calling people into the glorious news of God, the gospel, and the kingdom. Luke 9, 51 through chapter 19 starts a very interesting section of Luke's gospel. And this is where we're going to be reading today. It's called the Luke and Travel Narratives. So from Luke chapter 9, 51, all the way through the Zacchaeus story, we have something very interesting. In 9, 51, Luke tells us Jesus is setting his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, it's an interesting chronological, geographical sequence how he does this. But we know that Luke is going, for, for Luke, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to accomplish Redemption, And along the way, he's going to bring his disciples to him and teach them deep truths. But the antagonism with the religious leaders is only going to be exasperated as he continues. But crowds are going to either be drawn in or drawn away from Jesus. And so you have these three different groups in Luke's travel narratives, which we do need to understand as we go into the parables here. Because there are three people with an earshot of Jesus' parable. And when we understand that, it helps us to inform the meaning of the text and how this should be heard. So we have disciples who are following Jesus, proclaiming the good news, religious leaders who are antagonistic to Jesus, and the crowds who aren't quite sure which way to go with the ministry and the program of Jesus. And so that is the quick walkthrough, but the themes that come up continually in Luke's gospel is the theme of table fellowship and the inclusive love of God, and that Jesus is the Son of God, the Blessed One, who interprets properly the Old Testament and his place in God's program. Now, that gets us closer to Luke chapter 15, but we do have to stop as we're in Luke chapter 15 and realize if we're in the Luke and travel narratives, there are 15 parables here alone. Luke loves parables, so he presents those to us uh, in great quantity. Three of the 15 parables in the Luke and travel narratives are here, and of course, we love the parable of the prodigal son. It's probably one of the best-known parables of Jesus, as well as the Good Samaritan. That's also in the Luke and travel narratives. That's in Luke chapter 10. Now, parable is an interesting word, and we do have to try to unpackage what's happening here with the word parable. Parable is the word in Greek, parabole. And if we follow through with the way the Jews would have used that word in the Old Testament, which is a mashal, it could mean many different things. For us, a parable just simply means a nice story. But in the Old Testament and in the way Luke uses the word parable, 
It could be a proverb, it could be a byword, it could be a taunt, it could be a riddle, it could be a short story, it could be an extended story, it could be a similitude, it could be a simple saying. So we have to be open to the fact that a parable has a wide range of meanings. But here with these parables, this is what we would traditionally understand as a parable. Now, what's interesting with parables, there's three things we have to catch, which is going to help us as we approach the text today. Three things about parables we need to know. And hopefully for your future, when you read the parables of Jesus, you think about them, this might help you as well. The first thing about a parable, no matter if it's a riddle, a proverb, a parable, a taunt, a byword, uh, they all work on the principle of analogy, or representation, or comparison. So they're picture worlds. They picture in the narrative world of Jesus, or the similitude world of Jesus, what is actually happening in real life. And there's a collision between these two pictures, the picture world of Jesus and the picture world of what God is doing. And we're going to see in some cases as you go through Luke's gospel that the picture world is actually closer to the real world than what you think the real world actually looks like. So it's a picture world working on analogy. Now that is where we have difficulty with parables because in the history of the church we're not sure how far analogies work. So there's lots of elements in a story. There'll be a tree, there'll be a vineyard, there'll be a vine, there'll be a vine dresser, there'll be a tenant, there'll be a Samaritan. And we ask ourselves, does every part of the picture world stand for something here in our real world? Now, sometimes the analogy is quite strong, like in Mark chapter 4 with the parable of the soil and the seeds. And everything in that story almost represents everything in the real world itself. But our best guide for understanding how the elements work together, the story world and the real world, is simply to ground ourselves in the context. So that's number two. So in order to understand this parable, we have to pay close attention to how Luke frames this parable. Our interpretation is where Luke places it for us. And that's going to be a critical guide for us here today. Sometimes the evangelists understand that the parables are difficult to draw the analogy from. And so sometimes they have what in the Greeks... The Greeks call the Epimithian, or the Jews call the Nimshal, or we would simply call the Explanation, where the parable actually tells you how to interpret the parable. And what's interesting is, in this case, Jesus steps outside of the parable world for the first two parables and tells us the explanation, or how to understand the meaning or the intention of the parables. In the third parable, which has been read to you by Esther nicely, you realize that there is no interpretation given, at least it's not from Jesus. It's someone inside the story world, it's the Father. And now scholars wrestle with that and say, that's interesting that we actually don't have Jesus stepping outside of the parable and telling us, now this is what this means. Instead it comes from the Father himself. And they're going to tease that out and say, that is interesting, because we're left with this story world with an open-ended invitation to the Son and understanding their interpretation on that line. In other words, our story world has to get in line with Jesus' story world. So, very, very interesting. So that's number two, is we have to ground ourselves in the context. Parables are not balloons without strings. They have to have a string and be tied down to the context. Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 15, 1 and 2 is our context for this. Parables are not boats without an anchor. They do have an anchor. We need to put them in the soil, Luke chapter 15, 1 through 2. And so that's how we're going to provide the context here. So we have to pay close attention to that. So number two, the interpretation of parables comes through sensitivity to the context. And number three, parables are, if you want to use modern terminology, speech acts. And by speech acts, I mean that when Jesus is speaking, he's performing something. And he's performing something in your life as well. We often wonder, why did Jesus speak in parables? More often than not, 
He certainly could have when the Pharisees said, we are denigrating you, we are invalidating you, Jesus, because you're associating with sinners. You're automatically outside of the program of God. Now, Jesus could have at that moment, in Luke chapter 15, 1 through 2, said, let me give you some propositions, some statements, some arguments and premises, and a conclusion to tell you that, no, I am actually in the plan of God. So he could have cold Old Testament text and just laid them out in rapid-fire order. He doesn't. <laughs> Instead, he gives them story and story and story. And he does this repeatedly in the Gospels. And so Jesus sees a real vital power operative through a parable, a story world, which engages the listeners that they have to enter the story world, make judgments in the story world, and then come out changed. (laughs) And that's the power of a parable that we have to heed to. And this is where it becomes very interesting, is you can never really just let a parable lie. It's not meant to be that. And even though we know the parable of the prodigal son, I'm going to ask you again to listen closely to the story and what's actually happening in this text. You enter the story world. Jesus is representing the kingdom of God and your place in it. And where do you lie? And how do you identify with those characters? And are you like them with your actions and your attitudes? So those are the three things we have to keep in mind. The parable has a broad range of meanings, but we're looking for the correspondence here, the ways of God, in the picture world and the ways of God in the real world. Number two, they're grounded in the context. And number three, we have to let their power be unleashed in our lives today. And so hopefully we're going to do that here. So now, going into Luke chapter 15, we have the context, which is 15, 1 through 2. Luke graciously tells us how to interpret these parables. And this is what he does, telling us that from the outset, there's a criticism from the Pharisees and the scribes against Jesus with the assumption that table fellowship invalidates Jesus because he's been associating with sinners. Now, sinners and tax collectors are usually linked in the Gospels. They're stock and trade terminology for those who are despised in first century Israel, those who by their actions and their attitudes have shown themselves to be outside of fidelity to God's covenant. So those would be outside of the program of God, at least in the eyes of the Pharisees. Now we see that the Pharisees are doing something very interesting when they see this and they are grumbling or muttering. And those are important words for us because Luke is going to do what's called an inclusio. He's going to start with the murmuring and the grumbling against Jesus' association with sinners. And at the end, the last parable he's going to come back to, we have some muttering and some grumbling as well. And the muttering and the grumbling comes from the oldest son. So it's very interesting and very powerful. The key issue, though, is Christological. They believe Jesus has invalidated himself because he's reaching out to, he's seeking, he's welcoming sinners. He's having a party because they've repented and seen his supremacy. And so, Jesus, you've disqualified yourself. You no longer stand in the program of God. So it's essentially a Christological issue. We have to hear these parables as Jesus believing that he stands in the program of God And he rightly sees the Old Testament text and God as the shepherd rightly, and he's enacting that, and they do not. They are actually invalidating themselves. And so our interpretation of the parables has to be grounded here in that context. Okay, that leads us to Luke chapter 15, verse 3. We have the first of the parables. Now let me explain this, how this works briefly, because this is an argument that I think we often use, but we have to be sensitive to it in this parable. It's an argument that he starts out by saying, suppose one of you. In the Greek, it's tis ex hemon, 
which is which one of you? He does this for the parable of the shepherd, and it's also seen implicitly in the parable of the woman with the coin. And this is an argument where you are taking an analogy saying, if this is true in a daily life experience, it's much more true in this arena. So it works by comparison, but by rhetorical force, where the crowd would say, yes, we would imagine ourselves doing this. And Jesus says, well, then how much more is God doing this? Now, let me give you an illustration of how this would work. So this is, this is two ways you could take this argument. One way would be something like this. So an illustration with my family. Um, a worse situation to a simpler situation would be one of the much more ways. So let's say my son is up uh, at all hours of the night, sick. I'm up with him, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, feeding him, giving him medicine, holding him. Uh, if I would do that for my son at the worst possible time... <laughs> When I have work to do and I'm extremely tired, what would happen the next day when he feels better and says, Dad, are you going to take care of me today now that I'm feeling better? I would say, of course. (laughs) If I took care of you in your worst situation, it's a lot easier. Of course, I'm going to take care of you in an easier situation. So we would understand that. This argument is structured the opposite way, which is an argument from the lesser to the greater. And so this is how you can imagine this. If my son wanted to play soccer and he was involved in a little league soccer scrimmage, I would go to his game. Uh, I might bring a book to you to read on the side, but I would go to his game. Now, if my son excelled in soccer to the point where he was actually on the World Cup U.S. team and was playing against Spain for the final game, uh, if I've gone to see his scrimmage as a little kid, how much more do you think I'm going to go to his World Cup with Spain, right? So we have to catch the way this argument works is if we grant it on an earthly scale, how much more on a greater scale is God doing something? And so that's how these parables work. So all of that in mind, we have to come into the context and ask ourselves, how are the characters outside of the parable world hearing this? We have three different audiences. We have the sinners, as it were, at his feet, listening eagerly anticipating the supremacy of Christ and his program, and then validating, validating Jesus, the ministry of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. First group, we have to ask ourselves, how are they hearing these parables? Second group, of course, the ones that are the murmuring and the grumblers, which are the religious here, in this case, the religious leaders. What would they be thinking as they leave these parable worlds? Which is why it's so interesting, the last one is open-ended. Is the older son going to actually come into the party? And that's where Luke leaves us with the Pharisees as well. And of course, the last group would be the people who have always been with Jesus from the beginning. I mentioned that in Luke chapter 5 on, which is the disciples. So as Jesus is telling these parables, we have to stop and say, how are they, each of those groups, hearing this parable? And we have to align ourselves with each of those as well when we leave the other side of the parable world. So look with me at the first parable. And all I'm going to do at this point is just bring out some context and talk about some application now. I think we're ready to hear the text. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Now, that's a considerable size of sheep. That's a good size flock. Not exorbitantly rich, but certainly not a poor poor person's flock either. He loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? So, of course, yes, the assumption would be a shepherd would do this. But look at what Jesus does. And each of the parables are interesting. We would say they're all similar, But there's something distinctive in each, an emphasis that we would want to catch. And Jesus does something very interesting in verse 5. When he finds it, what does he do? 
Look at the action and the attitude of the shepherd. He joyfully puts it on his shoulders. Look at the response. As soon as he finds it, there's incredible joy. The joy comes later, of course, when he goes and calls his family and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. But even at the moment of finding the sheep, there is considerable exuberant joy, which you can imagine. You can use your theological imagination. He's got a smile on his face all the way home. And when he gets into the door, there's a big smile on his face. There's joy all the way through. And then we have Jesus' interpretation of this. I tell you in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not repent. If on the earthly scale of a shepherd finding his sheep has great joy, how much more? What is God doing in the program of Jesus? Do you see it? Now, I want to read to you a quote so you can think through how this actually works for our lives today and for the original audience. This is by Klein Snodgrass. He says this about this parable. The most important thing in adopting the parable is understanding what God is like. Understanding what God is like. Here, represented as the shepherd, the great shepherd. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they know God is the great shepherd, doing what the religious leaders as shepherds did not do. So we have to understand who God is, and that understanding will perceive is how we perceive our own identity, what God is doing. It influences how we should think, how we should act, how the world ought to be. If God is a seeking, caring God, then his grace should characterize our self-perception and our treatment of other people. We tend to know these truths abstractly, but they are not translated into practice either in how we view ourselves or in how we treat others or how we arrange church life. And then Snodgrass says, let's talk about applying this principle. Do lost, disobedient to God, and insignificant people have any sense from us that God really cares about us and seeks them? Or that we do? Joy is in short supply. Joy deserves focus as the true mark of Christianity, for it is directly connected with the theological awareness of the character and attitude of God as the one who seeks and celebrates recovery just as the shepherd. Join the celebration. The primary function of this parable for Jesus was a defense of his deliberate association with and eating with people known as sinners. By his reception and eating with such people, he demonstrated the presence of the kingdom and the forgiveness available to all. With this parable, Jesus asserts that the promised activity of God to shepherd his own people was taking place. Implicitly, there may also be the charge that the religious leaders were not doing their job in seeking the lost. So parable number one, the analogy is how God operates in his great and glorious kingdom as a shepherd who looks after, diligently searches, and when he finds it has great rejoicing, not just himself, but calling people to join in that party and celebration. Now Jesus is saying, if that's the portrait of God, and that's what I'm doing... (laughs) I'm in line with God's program. You're not in the party. What is that doing for them? And then ask yourself, sinners are hearing this. What would they be thinking? Wow, I'm a sheep. That shepherd loves me. Not only did he love me, but he actually had a huge smile on his face when he found me all the way home. And then wants everybody else to join in the celebration. I guess, Jesus, I'm going to keep hanging on to your feet because I love this parable. The disciples, we've been preaching the good news. 
We've been judged for it. We've been condemned for it. Some of us are accepting it. What's more glorious than going out and enacting what Jesus is doing as you proclaim the good news as a shepherd? Religious leaders invalidating themselves because of their response, not realizing and cherishing the grace of God that's been extended to them and then extending that to other people. So we want to capitalize here on the fact that there is a great joy, a diligent search for the lost sheep. That takes us to the next one, the parable of the lost coin. This is incredibly brief, concise, but it has an an emphasis which we don't have in the first parable nor the third parable. And this is what we see here. Suppose a woman, so again, much more argument, has ten silver coins. The coin here is the Greek silver coin. The usage is not very common in the New Testament. And what we know from first century sources, it would be very approximate of value to the Roman denarius, which would be a day age for an unskilled worker. So it is an exuberant amount of money, but it is, what, in our American context, 50 to $100 perhaps, something like that. So it is, it is uh, considerable money for, at least for this individual it would be. So she loses one. Now we want to look at the attitude, the action of this woman as she loses it. And this is taking place in her house. And from the archaeological data in first century Palestine, we know houses were traditionally fairly small. And if they had windows, which they didn't have much of, it would have been a very small window because of intrusion and robbery and those sorts of things. So it would normally be a darker place. Uh, And certainly they were building their houses on rock, which would have had fissures and cracks, and beaten earth, which of course would have been an uneven surface. So you can imagine that this coin would not have a hard time uh, becoming lost. But look at where Jesus spends his time with the action of the woman. Three issues he brings up. And I'd ask you to think about these and picture these in your mind. What is her response to the losing of it? She lights a lamp. Took a little bit of time. Why? Because she wants to search for all it's worth, and that lamp is going to help her in the process. Sweeps the house. I assume that took more than one minute. I assume she's looking in every corner. I assume she's all over. Hands and knees. And last, searching diligently or searching carefully. This is a portrait we haven't seen in the first one. If we think the shepherd willy-nilly finds the sheep and says, oh, I'm glad I found you. There you are. You came out, just popped out of nowhere. This parable says there's a diligent search with three phrases, lighting a lamp, sweeping, diligently searching. There's an active search that's going on here that we do have to catch, which does tell us about the action and the attitude of God. Not only does he rejoice when a sinner comes home, but he is actively, diligently, (laughs) continually, progressively seeking them. Now, this is where we have to say, I'm not sure. This is Jesus' parable world, but again, he gives you the interpretation. So he steps outside of the parable world and says, this is what the woman is like, like God. And then he says, in the real world, this is the same way. There's great presence in the presence of angels and God, over a sinner. This is what happens in the real world. And we have to say, I'd like to leave that in the fake world, in the parable world. And Jesus says, no, the real world is the same way. God is diligently, actively seeking. Now, what would that do for a sinner? Hmm, I came, but boy, God's sovereign pleasure and initiative in seeking me, (laughs) in looking for me. That is certainly an astounding fact. They would be still standing and laying at his feet, holding on tight. The disciples, what would they be saying here? If this is the program of God instituted by Jesus, 
and I'm proclaiming the good news, I probably shouldn't just wait for someone to come to me. (laughs) I should probably be doing something active to seek after the lost. The Pharisees, are they diligently seeking the lost? Not at all. Their response is one of initial, abrupt, quick, hasty rejection and dismissal. So we see Jesus is again validating himself because he stands in line with the program of God and represents the program of God as he's reaching after the lost. Then we have the final parable here, the most famous, the parable of the prodigal son. But we should say from the outset, a close hearing of the text, this, that's probably not the most appropriate terminology, even though we'll never beget, be able to get rid of that parable of the prodigal son. The parable is foremost a parable, parable of the lavish love of the father. The main character in this parable is the father. And he's responding to two different characters. The first character, of course, is the wayward son. And then, of course, the elder, somewhat respectable son. But in both cases, there's a strong contrast. The first son, extremely selfish. We'll look at that in a minute. And so we say, okay, when we get to the elder son, he might be the hero. He's just as selfish as the first son. And in the middle stands this exuberant love, lavish love of a father that many of us can't get over. Now, this is where people say, let's let the power, the rhetorical power of the parable work. We go from 100, one lost, to 10, one lost, to two, one lost. And we don't just work from animals. Now we're working to human relationships. So in case people are disengaged in the first two parables, this takes on a real-life emergency situation, which we do have to consider. And so we have these characters... The story could divide it up into two different ways. The first, the younger son's relationship with the father, and then the next part of the parable would be the relationship of the older son to the father. Let's just walk through a couple of the issues that are important for us. In uh, verse 11, a man had two sons. In verse 12, the younger one said to his father, give me the sh- my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. We do have to know in the Greco-Roman world, you may have heard of this before, that that was highly unusual to receive your inheritance before your father passed away. Old Testament tradition, outside of Old Testament tradition, would say that's a bad idea. We do not do that. So we know that this is an odd request. Some people will say he actually wished his father was dead, but we know at the very least by saying this, he wants what Luke says, ton beyond, which is he wants his father's life. Meaning when the father gets old, he's going to need this The son's responsibility is still to care for the father. By taking the money and walking away and spending it, what is he implicitly doing with his relationship with the father? So all ears, whether Jewish or Greco-Roman, would say this is extremely offensive. Even if he took the money, he would still be responsible with that money to take care of his father. That's his father's life. It's his father's likelihood he relies on that. So we are set up at the beginning to realize this is a heinous, cruel act negligence, disobedience, and great guilt lies over this son. And then Jesus sets the stage for us by telling us how far his consequences lead him. So he goes off into a distant country, presumably for a first century context, this would be a Gentile country, and he squandered his wealth in wild living. Now the older son is going to tell us what that looks like later on in the text. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the country. He began to be in need. He went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. In other words, he became an indentured indentured servant where he would contract with a worker and say, I'll work so many days with you, X amount of days, for this amount of money. But now, for a Jew, he's indentured, which is something no Jew in the first century would want to become. But the situation gets even worse. 
So look what he has to do. He hires himself, and this fellow sends him to feed, to feed pigs. Now, uh, again, Jewish context, pigs, unclean. The Mishnah, a later Jewish tradition, says you are not to raise them. That's unlawful. The Babylonian Talmud says you're accursed if you deal with pigs. So Jesus is setting the stage of the degradation of this person who leaves the father, their poor plight. And we might say, good for you. You deserve it. And we have to stop and say, hmm, which character are we ourselves in this story as we're seeing the great degradation? Are we mirroring the Father's compassion or saying, you deserve this. I hope you end this way. Now, the, the, the son, Luke says, comes to his senses. He actually wants to even eat the pig's food, the pods, and can't even eat that. That is the lowest point of degradation you can reach. Then he comes to his senses in verse 17. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Now, these people, now you have to catch what the son is saying. Hired servants are people who are not indentured servants. They would be hired for a day, and then they wouldn't know tomorrow if they had a job with that person again. They had no relationship to the family, no relationship to the farm. They're just out with a group of hired workers. The father would come and say, I want you for the day. I don't want you. I want you. Tomorrow I can't tell you what's going to happen. So he he just wants this. Not even indentured, just a hope of for one day being involved with a family, even though distant. So we see this, this significant repentance and this understanding of how far he's gone from his relationship with the father. So he, he says this, I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants, which is so interesting when he comes back to the father. Look what happens. So he gets up and went to his father. But notice, what is the father doing? While he is still a long way off, his father saw him and spikes the they, which is he had compassion for him. A deep compassion that is now demonstrated in the action of the father, the attitude of compassion And now the action. He ran to his son. Now, of course, in the first century context, we would imagine this is a well-to-do individual who had a long robe. So he would have to hike up the robe to run. And we know for in the Semitic context, to show your legs was not something that you would do. That would be a sign of shame. And even Aristotle in the Greco-Roman world tells us the sign of someone who's noble is to watch how they walk. Watch how they walk, not how they run. So we see this father not caring for social taboos in his deep compassion and joy over seeing his son runs to him, throws his arm around him and kisses him. The son said to him, now see, this is exactly what we saw earlier with the son. Three propositions, but we only get two here. The first two, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's also supposed to say, make me one of your hired servants. He can't get it out because the father stops him and says, I'm so excited to see you. The father said, quick, bring the best robe. That's a sign of his status and now his stature back in the family, the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, a sign of authority in the first century context. And put sandals on his feet because slaves would not normally have shoes. And now a slave has to put shoes on him, signifying he is fully established back in the family. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Um, I'm not sure anybody here has raised steers, cattle. But you know it takes a while to fatten a cow up for the slaughter. 
a very special, significant occasion if you're going to kill the fattened calf. And we have to see how the older son responds to this as well. Um, a goat would have been much easier, much more costly, and perhaps as effective, but there's an exuberant joy and celebration. This is some kind of a party going on for the younger son. And then we have the interpretation. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He's lost and he's found. So they began to have a party or they began to celebrate. And we've already seen this in the first two, but now people are entering into that. Unfortunately, we have the older son. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field and we have this playoff of distance here. The other son goes away only to come back. The son that we thought was near is actually far away. And he's standing outside of the house. When he hears the music and dancing, he calls one of the servants and asks what's going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The fattened calf is this symbolic gesture that the son cannot stand. The older son became angry and refused to go in. Now, you do have to understand the first century context. The older son at this point would be taking care of mediation issues in the family, issues of authority, and certainly helping out with the family festivities that are taking place. By not going in, he's creating quite a faux pas and a statement that everybody else can see. How could you not go in? This is your place as the older son. The older brother became angry, refused to go in. His father went out and pleaded with him. This lavish love of the father toward both of his sons. He answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, which tells us how he views his relationship with his father. Never disobeyed your orders. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Maybe a tenth of the value of a cat, cattle. But when this son of yours who has squandered his property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And then we have the interpretation, the open-ended ending here. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the stories end. An open invitation to the Pharisees. Which character are they? Which character is Jesus? And how would the sinners be hearing these parables of Jesus? Let me read you this quote again so you can catch the flavor for the rhetorical impact. The most important thing, this is Snodgrass again, the most important thing in adopting the parable, these parables, is understanding what God is like and what the nature of Jesus' ministry was. Few things are more important than our perception of God, for from that understanding we perceive our own identity, how we should think, act, how the world ought to be. That's the picture world. This is a God who diligently, bravely, seeks, finds the sheep, rejoices, bringing it home with a smile on his face. It's the one, the woman, who sweeps and sweeps and lights and diligently searches until it's found. It's the one who, despite the attitudes of both sons, is joyous and wants reconciliation and offers lavish love to both of them. Now, Jesus is saying, I am in line with the program of God. The question is, are we? The question is, are we? If this really is not simply a picture world of God's program, but it also is God in real life, space and time, diligently seeking, rejoicing, having exuberant parties, are we in the party? Are we showing others that they are invited to the party? 
Do we rejoice when they come to the party? Are we diligently seeking? Do we realize that God is actively searching? And do we join with him in the party? It is amazing that God is diligently seeking, isn't it? And that he's actually happy when someone like me and you comes in. And the party on an even greater scale that occurs because of that. But we have to ask ourselves, do we reflect the passion of God? Do we see how he is working graciously? As I was chewing on this sermon on Friday, um, just thinking about the parables and how they work, um, I was in an office with my son, Caleb, and uh, just chewing on, God, you're a diligent, you're seeking. And out of the blue, Caleb's on my lap, we're looking at a book, a lady starts pouring out her heart. (laughs) I don't know her. Other people are looking at her like, why are you sharing this information with him? And she starts to tell me the situation with her grandson, with with the grandson's dad, with the mother who committed suicide, the lack of hope. And I said to myself, I never even initially initiated this conversation. There is a diligently seeking God who paves the way before us. You see this in the book of Acts constantly. As the disciples are trying to catch up to the Holy Spirit in Jesus, Jesus is well in advance of the situation. He's the one who's diligently seeking. Are we doing anything to do the same? And I was just, wow, diligently seeking God, laying it out there, no hope, this lady, pouring out her heart. And that night, I was at a sports complex. A bunch of students came up to me with a smile on their face and said, we just want to know if you know Jesus. I said, I must look like I don't <laughs> look on my face. I'm not sure why you're asking me. But yeah, I do, need, I, I do know Jesus. I do need Jesus every day. And I thought to myself, wow, there's somebody doing it. Diligently seeking, and they want a party. And they want a party with someone like me. And so we have to ask ourselves, to what extent we reflect the nature and the character of God, the diligently seeking and rejoicing God. Does our church reflect that? In our lives do we reflect that? Application. When we pray, do we ever expect God to save and to seek? Are we asking him to do that? Coworkers, family, friends, what are we doing to diligently seek to show that God is actively seeking them and we can't wait till they come in? And there are so many different ways we can demonstrate this in their lives and our lives as well. So that is the call to Jerusalem Church today uh, from our Lord and The grace of the Lord, uh, too. Doug Hall actually spoke on this with Sunday School's way. The missional God. And so hear the word of the Lord as he delivers it to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it transforms us. We thank you so much, God, that your lavish love is overwhelming. And you invite us to participate with you in seeking after the lost to rejoice, to not be like the older son, to not be like the Pharisees, but to show people we represent you and your kingdom, Jesus, your passion. Give us hearts this week that seek, that rejoice, that extend the invitation to join the party. God, thank you for your word, for your spirit that's working in our hearts now because we've heard it, and that you are going to open doors this week for us. May we graciously walk through. Grant us boldness to do this. Jesus, in your name, our Lord, our Savior, amen.